Alrighty, so this lecture is from May 22nd, it was a Friday, and it's going to be about the endocrine system. So the endocrine system is responsible for unconscious regulatory body functions. So things like reproduction, growth, development, um, maintenance of an internal environment, energy production, use and storage, all sorts of things like that. Um, it functions with hormones, which are blood-borne chemical messengers that affect target cells and organs distant from the secreting organ. And the endocrine system consists of glands that cre create and secrete hormones. So hormones function by attaching to receptors on cell membranes. And so a cell only can respond if it has receptors for that hormone. So even though the hormones will travel throughout the circulatory system and potentially make contact with all types of tissue, it would only impact cells with that receptor. The cell can also control how many receptors it has, thus controlling its response to the hormone. So in upregulation, the cell makes more hormone receptors to kind of maximize exposure. And in downregulation, the cell makes fewer hormone receptors. So if there were a really high volume of a certain hormone in the body and the cell didn't need that many of it, it could downregulate and remove them. And different cells also can respond differently to the same hormone. So we have different types of messengers. We have a primary messenger, which has a direct effect. So the hormone will bind to the receptor and cause an action in that cell directly. We also have second messengers, in which we have the hormone, the first messenger, that binds to the receptor of the cell, which will then activate a second messenger to result in internal processes that create a response. Um, an example of this would be cyclic AMP or even calcium. So hormone effects can occur in different ways. Um, some are released into the bloodstream. Um, we also have others that act in the vicinity of where they're released. So we have autocrine in which the cell produces hormones that work on that cell. Um, in paracrine, the cell is going to produce hormones that act on a nearby target cell. Um, we have the endocrine ones where they're entering circulation and impacting distant target cells through hormones. And we can also have the use of synaptic um, kind of messengers that travel between either neurons or between a neuron and a, an effector cell. So a couple different hormone classifications. We have amino acids like epinephrine, dopamine, T3, and T4. We also have proteins that are peptide hormones like insulin, glucagon, and trophic hormones. We have cholesterol, which are steroid hormones, um, which are like cortisol, aldosterone, and testosterone, and also fatty acids like eicosanoids, eicosanoids, I need to learn how to say that, which have hormone-like actions, for example, arachidonic acid. Um, a couple other ways to classify them, peptides and amines are water-soluble and activate the receptors on the cells. And steroid hormones are de derived from cholesterol and thus lipid-soluble. So they diffuse through cell membranes to activate intracellular processes. They do need um, protein, a globulin transport molecule, and there are two groups, the corticosteroids and sex hormones. So they can activate intracellular um, functions, they're lipid-soluble, but they are unable to carry themselves throughout the body, so they need that protein transport molecule. Um, so steroid hormones, um, endocrine, endocrine cells can produce steroid hormones, which need to be bound by that carrier protein once again to move throughout the body. 
The hormone is unable to pass through capillary beds because it's attached to the protein since the protein is much larger. So for steroid hormones to pass through capillary beds, it must unbind for that, from that protein so it can reach cells. So hormones also have to be degraded. Obviously, they can't circulate through our body forever. So they could be destroyed by enzymes at the receptor site, such as with epinephrine or dopamine. They could also be taken up by cells and destroyed. Um, that's what occurs with peptide hormones. Or they might be destroyed in the liver and passed out in the bile, like steroid hormones. So they're continually being inactivated in various ways to prevent accumulation in the body. One of the reasons that you can have hormone imbalances with liver failure is because steroid hormones are destroyed in the liver and passed in bile. So that's just an interesting thing to remember. So moving on to the hypothalamus, um, it is required to regulate the body. So it controls things like and senses things like temperature, blood osmolality, blood nutrients, blood hormone levels, inflammatory mediators in the blood, emotions, and pain. This occurs through the hypophyseal portal system. So it's an exquisite, in the words of Wanda Chaki, capillary bed to allow sources of input to the hypothalamus, the ability to create hormones, and the ability to release them. And this involves also the anterior and posterior pituitary. So the anterior pituitary gland receives a signal, and when it gets the signal, it goes into a network of blood vessels where it releases a releasing hormone, which travels to the anterior pituitary to encourage it to release its tropic hormones, which then will act on another endocrine agent. So the posterior is when the hypothalamus produces hormones and they travel down the axons and are stored in posterior pituitary. When it receives a signal to do so, it releases them. So the anterior pituitary, as we discussed, creates tropic hormones. So the hypothalamus makes a releasing hormone, which then travels down and acts on the anterior pituitary where it releases its stored tropic hormones into the systemic circulation. This then would tell other endocrine organs in the body to secrete their hormones or enact a target effect. Um, so, yep, it creates tropic hormones. The anterior pituitary also produces growth hormones, which is not a tropic hormone. So a couple examples of the trophic hormones of the anterior pituitary um, they're all abbreviated. Uh, Thyroid-stimulating hormone, I think. Um, adrenal corticotropic hormone. Maybe luteinizing hormone. So, yeah. This is actually this is a negative feedback loop, um, as most hormones are produced in a negative feedback loop. So, input goes to the central nervous system, goes to the hypothalamus, stimulates the anterior pituitary. The pituitary releases those tropic hormones, which then impact the target cell to create desired response. So the levels of hormone will increase in the blood, which signals to the hypothalamus that the body now has enough, so the feedback system turns off tropic production in the pituitary. We also have some positive feedback loops in the body. Um, they're definitely less common with hormones, but basically the endocrine increases hormone levels the hormone then acts on target cells, causes an event, and encourages continued hormone production. So kind of one of the few and classic examples is oxytocin um, during the delivery of a baby. It continually is increasing and stimulating contractions until the baby is delivered. 
So there are different types of hormone disorders. We have primary in which there's an abnormality in the gland itself. Say the adrenal gland is unable to release a glucocorticoid. We also have secondary, which is an abnormality in stimulation from the pituitary gland. And finally, we have tertiary, which is an abnormality in stimulation from the hypothalamus. So tertiary is hypothalamus problems, secondary pituitary problems, and primary abnormality in the gland itself. So moving on to drugs for endocrine disorders. We have the hypothalamic pituitary axis. So releasing hormones from the hypothalamus tells the pituitary what they're going to need to release into the blood. So tropic hormones from the pituitary tell specific peripheral glands to produce their hormones. So just running through this process, when the hypothalamus receives input, it releases a releasing hormone. The pituitary will release a tropic hormone which will then go to a peripheral gland to cause it to release its hormone. A target cell will then experience some type of effect. So when the hormone level increases, the hypothalamus will sense this and will have that intact negative feedback loop. So with our pituitary hormones, the hypothalamus is telling the anterior pituitary or posterior pituitary um, to release growth hormone, um, FSH and LACE, LH, um, thyroid stimulating hormone, adrenal cortex, adrenal corticotropic hormone. And so those are all going to act on different tissues like the gonads, the thyroid, and the adrenal cortex. So specifically speaking about the negative feedback for the thyroid hormone control. So the thyroid is responsible for releasing T3 and T4, which is carried by binding proteins. So T3 stimulates metabolism and T4 is inactive before being converted to T3 in the tissue. So between T3 and T4, T3 is what increases metabolism. T4 is just an inactive form of T3. And both are responsible for exerting negative feedback on the hypothalamus. So the process generally works. The hypothalamus senses decreased thyroid hormones. So it releases thyroid stimulating or thyroid releasing hormone. The anterior pituitary then releases thyroid stimulating hormone, TSH, which is trophic. So the thyroid grows and releases its hormones, which causes some biological effect. T3 and T4 then result in signals that there is a high enough concentration of them in the body and they decrease, they cause the hypothalamus to decrease TRH production. Since the thyroid hormones T3 and T4 are both released by the thyroid gland, um, as they travel throughout the body, they're bound and carried by thyroid-binding globulin, so they do need to be on proteins in the body. And let's see. The thyroid does produce some T3, but usually T4, so it's going to be converted to T3 in the tissue. And there are a couple different thyroid function tests. You could test thyroid-stimulating hormone T3 or T4 usually all three. So the synthesis of thyroid hormones, they're actively transported into the thyroid before being oxidized by peroxidase into iodine. Iodine then becomes incorporated into the tyrosine and becomes coupled to form T3 and T4. So the, the three or the four in T3 and T4 is effectively dependent on the amount of iodine in the hormone after those tyrosine res residues get bound to thyroglobulin. 
So the action of thyroid hormones, they stimulate the use of energy. So they're going to increase oxygen consumption and heat production. They also stimulate the heart to increase oxygen demand and cardiac output. They promote growth and development, such as increasing the growth of the brain, the nervous system, and skeletal muscle. We can also have thyroid imbalances, like with everything. So if we're talking about hypothyroidism, it could be congenital, so deficient development of the thyroid, or it could be acquired, like Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune disease, a thyroidectomy, so the removal of a thyroid, low iodine in the diet, since it's um, necessary for the production of thyroid hormone, um, radioactive iodine, which is administered for hypothyroidism, but too much could be given so the tissue would be destroyed and there wouldn't be enough thyroid tissue left, or it could be idiopathic, so we don't necessarily have an explanation for it. Um, in hyperthyroidism, we have Graves' disease and thyroid tumors, and hyperthyroidism is also known as thyrotoxicosis. So focusing on hypothyroidism, hypo, this can occur at any age. So there are a couple different terms for it. If you have hypothyroidism, that's a mild deficiency. A severe deficiency would be referred to as myxedemia. Myxedema. So you could just think edema with an M-Y-X at the beginning. And when you have hypothyroidism in infants, it's called cretinism. So some symptoms of hypothyroid, um, mild symptoms might go unnoticed, but effectively everything is related to a decreased metabolic rate. So you're going to have things like periorbital edema, a puffy face, pale, cool skin, coarse, brittle hair, weight gain, decreased heart rate, constipation, fatigue, lethargy, um, diminished reflexes, the loss of your lateral eyebrows, and an abnormally large tongue. So basically, all of these symptoms are the results of cells not being stimulated enough. So the medication that we administer for hypothyroidism is called Synthroid. It's levothyroxine, which is a synthetic preparation of T4 that's then converted to T3 in the body. It has a half-life of seven days um, and a number of impacts in the body. It actually accelerates the degradation of vitamin K, so you might need a lower warfarin dose in the body. Um, it also interacts with a large number of drugs that affect absorption and metabolism. So for people who have to take um, levothyroxine, they want to take it in the morning, 30 to 60 minutes before breakfast to um, prevent that interaction. Um, it's really important to use the same name if you're using a brand name or generic preparations because the absorption can differ pretty widely between them. So it's regardless of which one you pick, it's important to be consistent. And this is also a lifelong replacement. Levothyroxine also has a really narrow therapeutic range. So obviously we want to have a therapeutic effect without reaching toxic levels. So it's important to check um, thyroid stimulating hormone levels regularly to ensure that this drug is within therapeutic range. Another option is leothyronine cytomel, T, which is T3. It has a shorter half-life and duration, so it requires twice daily administration. It does have a more rapid onset, but it is more expensive, so it's pretty rarely prescribed. 
Being a little more specific about thyroid insufficiency due to the lack of iodine, um, iodine is essential for T3 and T4 production, and there is no feedback, negative feedback without that. So um, thyroid releasing hormone and thyroid stimulating hormone continue to be made even if there's no iodine, and so T3 and T4 are not being made. So the thyroid tissue is increasing in response to the thyroid stimulating hormone. However, there's no, um, there's no T3 or T4 being produced. So you're just going to have that continuing increase in TRH and TSH. It's important to note that um, increased thiodine levels will also halt the production of T3, T4. So it's definitely important to get the, the correct amount. This is actually why people develop goiter. You're having a lot of that trophic hormone um, to the thyroid, but nothing is being produced, so it just continually grows. Alrighty, and we also have hyperthyroidism, of course. So we have two major forms of hyperthyroidism. We have graves, also known as diffuse toxic goiter, and plumbers, toxic multinodular border goiter, excuse me. So Graves is an autoimmune disorder caused by thyroid stimulating immunoglobulins, TSIs, and it creates an increase in all metabolic rates. Um, and kind of the major distinguishing factor between Graves and Plummer, Plummer's is the exophthalmos. So this is basically kind of like a bugging out of the eyes, which is caused by an immune mediated infiltration of tissues basically periorbital muscles and fat um, behind the eyes, so it creates exophthalmos. So patients with this condition are given glucocorticoids to reduce the immune response, but it could be irreversible. So their eyes are kind of like popping out of their sockets, it appears. Whereas in plumbers, toxic multinodular nodular goiter, um, every nodule is producing extra T3 and T4. So the hypothalamus detects increased T3 and T4, um, which means no thyroid-stimulating hormone from the anterior pituitary. So in patients with multinodular goiter or plumbers, you're going to see an extremely low thyroid-stimulating hormone, or TSH, and very high T3 and T4. So some symptoms of hyperthyroidism, generally speaking, um, you're going to have muscle wasting, fine hair. This is because of the continual stimulation, so it's growing really fast. Also, goiter from the volume of hormone being released. Um, tachycardia. Since the T3 stimulates the heart, you'll also have arrhythmias there. Um, weight loss, tremors, and diarrhea also. So a lot of them are basically the opposite of hypothyroidism. If you think of um, a reduction in metabolic rate versus an increase, except for goiter can be present with both just for different reasons. So the tr a few treatments in hyperthyroidism, you could have surgical removal of the thyroid, which would then result in hypothyroidism and they'd be taking a drug like levothyroxine. You could also have destruction of tissue by radioactive iodine, um, suppression of thyroid synthesis with antithyroid medication, or beta blockers, which I just want to note, they, they block beta cells in the heart from being stimulated, so T3 can't stimulate them, so it's only symptomatic relief. You're still having hyperthyroidism and the other symptoms, you're just not having that cardiac risk from it. So one class of these drugs are thionamides, thionamides which block T3 and T4 production. So you'll usually go through treatment for 
six to 12 months and then stop and um, go about 40% of it and use about 40% of that current amount. It's usually used in drugs in conjunction with drugs that block thyroid symptoms and beta blockers to protect the heart while the T3 and T4 levels are high. It is not used for thyroid cancer. We also have methimazole or tapazole. Tapazole, I don't know. Um, These are the first-line drugs, but it could take three to four weeks for a euthyroid state, so kind of a return to normal expected functioning. Finally, we have propylthiouracil or propylthyrosil. Um, This drug takes about 6 to 12 months to reach full benefits, and it does have an adverse effect of toxic liver failure. Iodine is another option. It's it's good to know the way it influences the body. Um, It's required for thyroid hormone and function. So when you have a low iodine level, it's going to decrease the production of thyroid hormone, but increase the production of thyroid-releasing hormone, TRH and TSH. Since the body's detecting those low levels of thyroid hormone, it's just going to continually produce TRH and TSH to try to increase them. This causes the thyroid to increase in size, as we talked about, goiter. Um, And this increase in size could potentially be sufficient to meet needs. Paradoxically, the high iodine level will also decrease their thyroid hormone production. So iodine does have a hot paradoxical effect. It results in a decrease in iodine uptake, and the synthesis and release of these hormones is suppressed. Um, It's important to note that amiodarone, a large amount of this medication, is iodine. So definitely consider that when looking at this condition. In hyperthyroidism, we can also have a thyrotoxic crisis. They call it a thyroid storm. Um, It results in profound hyperthermia, severe tachycardia, dysrhythmias, um, central nervous system stimulation, skeletal muscle weakness, increased metabolic rate, um, mental effects, and also really rapid speech. And at a really excessive level, it results in seizure, coma, and even death. So the treatment for this is high potassium iodine or other iodide salts because it will cause that decrease in iodine uptake and the suppression of the synthesis and release of hormones. So when people are in really critical situations, you could give them really high levels of iodine in the hopes of preventing this hormone production. Um, You could also use methimazole and tapazole to suppress synthesis and a beta blocker to reduce the heart rate and prevent negative cardiac effects. Additional measures would include sedation, a cooling blanket, and IV fluids. The other treatment for hyperthyroidism, as we said, is radioactive iodine. So that's going to be iodine-131. So this is a radioactive isotope of stable iodine that can be taken up by the thyroid. It functions via beta particle radiation, so it's only going to destroy the thyroid cell and not travel outside the thyroid. It's also not toxic to other tissues, so this is absolutely a safe option. So it's used for Graves' disease in the hopes of avoiding surgery for certain patients and also for thyroid cancer. It has a half-life of eight days and effects would be seen in about two to three months. Um, A little over two-thirds of patients with Graves' are cured with a single exposure while others might require two or more treatments. And there is the possibility of becoming hypothyroid if too much is administered. So next we have growth hormone release. 
So growth hormone secretion is stimulated by hypoglycemia, fasting, starvation, and even just normal adult metabolism. On the other hand, growth hormone is inhibited by increased glucose levels, free fatty acid release, obesity, and glucocorticoids. So when it comes to the hypothalamus, when it receives signals, it can release um, growth hormone releasing hormone to stimulate the anterior pituitary or somatostatin, which would inhibit the anterior pituitary. So the hypothalamus can both positively increase it with growth hormone releasing hormone or negatively decrease it with somatostatin to inhibit the, re the anterior pituitary um, releasing growth hormone. So growth hormone has major factors within the body. Um, it both has growth promoting factors such as increased protein synthesis. So that's going to increase linear growth in bone and cartilage, increase the size and function of body organs and increase lean muscle mass for muscles, of course. Um, it also has anti-insulin effects. So you're going to see a decrease in adiposity and increased blood glucose. So in individuals, you can have a growth hormone deficiency. So this can occur in children in pediatric cases, and this will result in short stature or dwarfism. Um, in children with growth hormone deficiency, you're going to see proportional small stature. So while their growth is going to be slowed, their body will be in um, a usual proportion, and mental function is not impaired. The only possible treatment is growth hormone replacement therapy. In adults who have growth hormone deficiency, you're going to see reduced muscle mass. There are a couple options for um, growth hormone deficiency. Um, there's the replacement, which is somatotropin or humotrope. It does have a couple side effects. It's diabetogenic since it does cause hyperglycemia in the same way that growth hormone does. And it's not always successful. You can expect about two to three inches of growth, but nothing super profound. Um, it must be reconstituted in a vial. You cannot shake it, and it's given either intramuscularly or subcutaneously. You can also have an excess of growth hormone. So in children, this is going to be gigantism. This is because they have no epiphyseal plate closure. So their bones are able to keep growing um, linearly. So you'll have extreme height, organomegaly, cardiomegaly, and the treatment is the removal of the pituitary gland. In adults, you can also have an excess of growth hormone, which causes acromegaly if the ephesial plates are already closed. So this results in changes that kind of appear throughout the lifespan. You're going to see increasing coarse features, um, organomegaly, cardiomegaly, arthritis, neuropathy, and sexual dysfunction. And you're going to see things like um, kind of larger hands and other things like that as they develop because the bones aren't going out, they're just getting larger. So the surgery, the treatment for this is surgery, the removal of pituitary adenoma, which is the most likely cause, and radiation to the adenoma as well. There are a couple medications. You could take octreotide or sandostatin. Um, these are both analogs of somatostatin, which, as we remember, is released between from the hypothalamus as a growth hormone inhibitor. Some side effects, you could have nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, but they do subside quickly, and um, sandostatin is extremely expensive. We also have somavert, which is also a growth hormone receptor antagonist. So the growth hormone would still be released, but um, 
it wouldn't be binding to the receptor since they'd be blocked by semivert. So another option for some drugs, just something interesting, we have anabolic steroids. So these are androgens. Um, they're a tetrahygestrionone, THG, to mimic testosterone. So when someone is abusing anabolic steroids, in men you're going to see a balding, breast enlargement, reduced testicular tissue, and sperm count. And for anabolic steroid abuse in women, you're going to see hair on the chest and face, deepening of the voice, and cessation of menses. This anabolic steroid abuse also has major long-term effects. You would see aggression, hostility, delusions, hallucinations, kidney disease, liver disease, cancer, hyperlipidemia, and acne in individuals that have used it. So next one, we're looking at anti-diuretic hormone. As you remember, this is used to control blood volume and blood pressure. So the hypothalamus would, the osmoreceptors of the hypothalamus would detect increased osmotic pressure, while baroreceptors in both the aortic arch and carotid sinus would detect decreased blood pressure. So the hypothalamus is going to stimulate the posterior pituitary, which would cause increased vasoconstriction of blood vessels and increased reabsorption of water from the kidneys, which would lead to the impact of increased blood volume and increased blood pressure. So we have a drug that mimics it, arginine vasopressin. So this is identical in structure to naturally occurring antidiuretic hormone. And it actually causes smooth muscle contraction. So you're going to see this used for um, GI bleeds by continuous IV administration. Since it's causing that smooth muscle constriction and contraction, it's going to be more difficult to have a bleed. And it also supports circulation in shock or arrest by increasing the blood pressure with that constriction. It does have a number of adverse effects, and they are really significant. Um, arginine vasopressin causes tissue ischemia and necrosis because it has such profound vasoconstrictive and um, smooth muscle constriction effects. It can result in lack of perfusion to tissue, which leads to ischemia and necrosis. It can also cause increased cardiac workload and increased preload by that kind of decreasing the space for the blood volume to be in and increasing the volume of the blood. So for individuals who are on this, you're going to be looking out for increased blood pressure, ischemia, and necrosis. So you want to do extremely thorough skin checks and also consider the impacts of internal organs because they can also suffer from that necrosis. We also have DDAVP, desmopressin. This is an analog of natural antidiuretic hormone, and it's used for diabetes insipidus. Um, its function, it reabsorbs H2O in the kidney tubules and is administered via nasal administration. It does not cause profound vasoconstriction, which is good. So the major adrenal cortical hormones, um, as we know, the hypothalamus releases corticotropin-releasing hormone, CRH, which impacts the anterior, anterior pituitary to release an adrenal corticotropic hormone, ACTH, which impacts the adrenal cortex. And then we have the glucocorticoids, mineralocorticoids, and sex hormones that are released. And these basically have all the impacts. The glucocorticoids is like cortisol, so it's going to raise blood sugar and do a lot of other things. The mineral corticoids are like aldosterone, so salt level. We also have sex hormones. So they refer to these three types of hormones for the adrenal cortex as sugar, salt, and sex on this negative feedback system. Good way to remember it. 
so our adrenal hormones have many common precursors. It's a pretty complicated method of making them, and cholesterol is the basic building block. So this example of our mineral corticoid aldosterone promotes salt and water balance. Um, it retains sodium and excretes potassium in the distal tubules and is released, regulated by the renin-aldosterone renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system in the kidneys. It also responds to renal perfusion and um, potassium levels. So it's possible to have hyperaldosteronism in which a really large volume of sodium and water are retained that lead to edema and also hypokalemia since it's being excreted at pretty high volumes. Our next hormone, we have glucocorticoids like cortisol. So that's increasing catabolism, increasing plasma proteins, muscle breakdown, free fatty acids in the blood, raising blood glucose, suppressing the immune and inflammatory systems, and increasing the action, the response to the sympathetic nervous system. So cortisol is going to be triggered by the input of stress, pain, infection, hypoglycemia, um, sleep, hemorrhage, and trauma onto the hypothalamus. So it is possible to have adrenal insufficiency. Um, as we know, we have primary, which is something that's wrong with the gland itself. So there are a couple different types. We can have chronic primary adrenal insufficiency, which is known as Addison disease, which is a disease of the adrenal cortex function and release. You could also have idiopathic, autoimmune, and traumatic causes of Addison's disease. We also could have an acute Addisonian crisis, which is severe and a clinical emergency. There's also secondary Addison's, or a secondary adrenal insufficiency, excuse me, which is pituitary insufficiency, um, impacting the adrenal cortex corticotropic hormone. So for this, we would be administering steroids. The body senses that we have enough, so the pituitary that is not stimulating the adrenal cortex. And without that signal, it atrophies, which can be major and permanent. And that's the iatrogenic cause. The other one is the pituitary insufficiency, as we said. And finally, we have tertiary, which is hypothalamic. And that cortico-releasing hormone. So in Addison's disease, um, there are a number of symptoms, but it's basically the lack of cortisol. So you're going to see hypoglycemia, muscle wasting and weakness, increased fat storage, hyperkalemia, hypotension, hyperpigmentation of the skin. This is the result of increased production of melanocyte stimulating hormone, which is a precursor that's shared with uh, adrenal corticotropic hormone, and there's no negative feedback system present there. So with that adrenal insufficiency, the treatment is replacement. So hydrocortisone is given to mimic the diurnal release, so it's given daily. Um, you'll take it in the morning and I think again in the evening. It's also administered via IV during any crises, and it has both glucocorticoid and mineral corticoid activity. We also have fludrocortisone fluorinef, which mimics aldosterone, and it's an oral form only. So stress could bring about this crisis requiring IV administration. So someone who's on long-term glucocorticoid replacement therapy, um, they're not going to be able to produce higher levels in stress like a healthy person with a healthy adrenal cortex. So when you have adrenal insufficiency, you're going to need more during periods of high stress or illness, and the dose must be increased. And you might need IV meds if there's a severe deficit. 
So other things that you'd see during an Addisonian crisis, um, we know that cortisol impacts glucose metabolism, protein, and fat. And with that aldosterone, we'd have dehydration, salt craving, electrolyte imbalance, also known as hyperkalemia, since that's going to be excreted when we have aldosterone present. You'd also notice decreased vascular tone, hypovolemia, reduced cardiac output, which is all a clinical emergency. You could, on the other hand, have adrenocortical hyperfunction. And we have few types, primary, secondary, and tertiary once again. We have primary, which is an adrenal adenoma, usually is the cause. Secondary is the anterior pituitary, since there's an increased release of um, adrenal corticotropic hormone. This is also called Cushing disease. And tertiary, the hypothalamus, is releasing too much um, cortico-releasing factor, CRF. Anyway, the treatment is based on the cause. So in Cushing syndrome, it's going to have all the clinical features of hypocortisolism. So when we do have that excess cortisol in Cushing's, we're going to have emotional disturbance in enlarged cella tersica, a moon face, as we talked about, osteoporosis, cardiac hypertrophy, and hypertension, the buffalo hump, so that fat deposit behind the shoulders. Um, obesity is usually central obesity, adrenal tumor or hyperplasia, thin wrinkled skin, abdominal striae, because it's just expanding so quickly, um, amenorrhea, muscle weakness, purpura, and skin ulcers with poor wound healing. So one last problem we can have with the adrenal medulla, we can have a pheochromocytoma, which is a tumor of cells that produce catecholamine. So that result in excess production of catecholamine. So this causes an excessive sympathetic response, such as hypertension, increased heart rate, dysrhythmia, stroke, headache, and diaphoresis. And the treatment for this would be surgery or metyrazine, which stops the production. You could also use beta blockers to block the beta cells, um, to hopefully protect them from these sympathetic responses.